0: My name is Carl Heliker, and welcome to Book Chat. Today, we're delighted to have from Haverford College, a distinguished historian, Dr. Roger Lane. The book we won't be discussing today, but uh, Roger's previous book, Roots of Violence in Black Philadelphia, 1986, received the Bancroft Prize, which is the most prestigious award a history book can be given. It's given out of Columbia University, I believe. Mm-hmm and it is equivalent to the Pulitzer Prize for history. Mm -hmm. And so that's uh, quite an honor. The book we will be talking about today is Murder in America, A History, an intriguing and informative book. Roger, welcome to Book Chat.
1: Glad to be here.
0: Uh, Roger, why did you choose to write a book on murder in America?
1: Well, the the short answer is that I was asked to by (laughs) someone who was working for Ohio State University Press I had written other books on cops and crooks and death and crime. And uh, that sort of fit naturally as a sort of, um, what should we say, a bloody capstone to my career.
0: Right. And how did you get interested in this uh, subject, murder? In
1: murder? Mm-hmm. Well, as I say, I mean, I'd written a number of other books. I mean, right. started out with a history of the police. And my line is then that I turned from cops to crooks. I went straight. <laughs> and then I wrote a book on violent death and 19th century Philadelphia, and on the origins of black crime in the city of Philadelphia, a couple of other books. But these sort of led, one thing leads to another in this Mm -hmm. sort of natural progression.
0: Very good. The book uh, emphasizes strongly the relationship between blacks and whites throughout the history of murder. Why is that?
1: Because I think that the, the peculiarly high American homicide rate is a result of the southern culture of honor which was in turn a product of slavery. I mean, slavery was a social and economic system that required grinding work out of the unwilling. It required the whip and the gun and the gallows to enforce uh, the slave codes. The slaves themselves had no recourse to law. If they had arguments among themselves, they had to settle them by brute force. Uh, White southerners, insisted on respect for their position and their caste in ways that made them extremely touchy about matters of honor in ways that still impact our society.
0: Fine. Uh, And uh, you do identify, especially in the early part of American history, three different systems of justice, one for whites, one for blacks, and one for Native Americans. No doubts whites were treated better, but of the two, blacks or Native Americans, who do you think uh, was victimized most by the system uh, of justice?
1: Oh, no question. Blacks were victimized more. That is, uh, 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 Native Americans had a separate system of government because they were not regard, or, or of uh, court system, a legal system, because they were not full citizens. The Indian tribes were regarded as dependent nations, and it wasn't until 1883, in a case ex parte crow dog, that came before the Supreme Court of the United States, that they were made subject to the jurisdiction of the state or territory in which they lived. Otherwise, there were federal courts available to them. There were special for minor crimes, Mm -hmm. Indian courts, or in many cases, cases involving Indians on Indians. No uh, whites involved. Uh, The federal government would, in effect, allow the tribe to settle the dispute. So they had a separate system, but it wasn't a system. That it was specifically set up to discriminate against them.
0: As opposed to African Americans who really had no legal recourse, is that correct?
1: Yes. Uh, Well, as slaves, of course, they could not testify against uh, whites. Mm -hmm. Uh, Blacks were not allowed to testify against whites under slavery. So, that while in some senses someone might represent them in court, and occasionally, although very rarely, a white master might be tried for homicide if he beat a slave to death, let us say. Uh, they had no direct recourse to the courts. Uh, And when they got into them, uh, they found, especially after the Civil War, when they had then at least formally uh, recourse to the American system of justice, um, there were no black jurors, no black judges. Mm -hmm. Uh, Courts were extremely prejudiced against them.
0: And you do do bring out that uh, a black on black crime really didn't exist. It wasn't accepted. It wasn't considered a crime at all. all. Is that correct?
1: Who would bother with it? I mean, who cared? It was uh, only the black community uh, cared and they dealt with it usually in their own fashion, with one exception. Uh, There was a system after the Civil War of uh, chain gang justice in which you could sell as labor, in effect as slaves, uh, blacks who were convicted of crimes. And so it, uh, it, it made money for the county. If they could catch you up on anything, put you in jail, and then rent you out to a contractor mm-hmm. who would work you for the average life expectancy on a chain gang was about four years. You take a healthy young man, usually the, the, the type of person who commits a crime, mm-hmm. uh, convict him of any crime, rent him out to a contractor, and he'd be out uh, digging mines, uh, draining swamps, on, uh, for no pay, of course, mm-hmm. and with little in the way of food and clothing until on average four years later he would die. Hmm. Those crimes then, right. black on black crimes, right. might be prosecuted. prosecuted. okay. Um,
0: what was the penitentiary movement and can you describe Philadelphia's, Philadelphia's Walnut Street Prison as being a progressive institution for any time?
1: It was a progressive institution for the time, although it was succeeded by Eastern State uh, Penitentiary and then Western State out out near Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. Penitentiary system before, I mean, let me step back. The traditional punishment for crime was to be branded, to be whipped, to be executed. It takes a very rich society to take healthy young men who are, again, the kind of people who often commit crimes and lock them up and to do no pr- uh, productive work at all. This was the penitentiary system was devised by the Quakers in Philadelphia. The Walnut Street Jail in, in, in Philadelphia was to be the first example in which people would be uh, sentenced to a term of years instead of whipped or branded. And they were supposed to be penitent. They were supposed to think about their crimes. It was a system perfected in the 1820s when they built Eastern State Penitentiary uh, in Philadelphia, in which you'd be locked alone into a jail cell with a Bible and look into your soul, very Quaker notion, and repent uh, for your sins, your crimes, and you would come out a better man. The concept of rehabilitation, a very optimistic, very American, very American revolutionary kind of idea was what was behind this. Uh,
0: Roger, you uh, discussed the antebellum period, the pre-Civil War period, mm-hmm. 1830s to 1840s, and you described that as being the bloodiest years in American history. Why was that so, and, and how does that compare with uh, the 60s, that is, uh, 1963 through 1974
1: era? Okay. Well, th- it's uh, for social reasons, economic reasons, political reasons, all interacting. The 30s and 40s were an especially violent period. Um, Socially, what was happening was that the people who were arriving into the cities were my people, the Irish. (laughs) And they were diseased, drunken, violent refugees from famine. And they formed gangs to fight the other gangs already in place at a time when there were as yet no jobs for them. What was happening was that the old system of apprenticeship for young men was breaking down. But the new industrial system had not yet arrived. So there weren't any jobs and young men who had been sort of under control of older men under the apprentice system, were now uh, underemployed or uh, uh, wholly unemployed. And just at that time, Samuel Colt, 1832, invented the revolver. And the revolver, before that, they'd had, you know, they had horse pistols like this and they weighed several pounds and rifles. But a revolver is small. It can be hidden on the person. You don't know that the guy has got it. It shoots several times. And the homicide rate in the United States, given that the confluence of all these factors, began to soar. Just at a time, too, when the tensions leading to the Civil War were simmering as well. So that this was a real witch's brew of causes or reasons for violence in cities. A lot of riots, a lot of homicides.
0: And how, did it, how does that compare with the 1960s? Not,
1: uh, it's in many respects, very similar. What was happening in the 60s was that those good old industrial jobs mm-hmm. were then leaving oh, right. uh, for the first time. There were political tensions, this time over uh, the Civil War, and there were migrants into the city, this time African-American instead of Irish who formed gangs and fought with the folks who were already there and were the ones who were most likely to be uh, unemployed young men. And it is always unemployed young men or underemployed young men who account for the bulk of uh, homicidal violence in our society or in any society.
0: You may have some interesting uh Comments to make in your book about what you call the waves of blood in print. I guess the journalism uh, that was somewhat lured back in the nineteenth century and, and even currently. But uh, is um, do you see any correlation, say, between what was in print and more recently through television and films, that might contribute to the homicide rate?
1: We all think that it does, and I don't want to give up on that notion, given the fact that they they now estimate psychologists estimate that. Um, the average young American reaching the teens has seen 20,000 acts of homicide on television or in the movies. Right. That's got to have an impact, but we don't, we're not sure what it, what it is. And the homicide rate in this country has been declining pretty steadily for 10 years now, since its peak in 1993, despite the fact that more and more people are watching violence on television. So the correlation is not an easy one. The same is true of the police gazette and yellow journalism and detective stories in the 19th century. Literacy was improving. There were more and more of these lurid, sensational uh, things in print. And yet the homicide rate through the late 19th century was going down. Moralists were warning that all these stories about detectives and robbers and so forth were uh, poisoning the minds of the young, but there's no real evidence for it.
0: Fine. Um, You make a chilling reference in light of September 11, 2001, to John Brown, John Brown's murderous rampage, uh, and you call it a new element in American homicide. Ideological murder is an act of terrorism. Uh, Can you please uh, explain what that means? And do you think, first of all, is, is it a valid comparison? John Brown's uh, raid with two thousand and
1: one. Of course, it's a valid comparison. I made it, uh, and <laughs> the reason is that uh, that let's define it here. Um, terrorism is ideological murder for political, designed to affect public and political policy. That's what John Brown was attempting to do in Kansas when he first began his uh, career as an anti-slavery hero. He murdered five white settlers uh, in cold blood because they were there in Kansas supporting the South and slavery. They had nothing other; they were otherwise innocent bystanders. But he wanted to send a message, as we would now say. That's ideological murder. That's terrorism. And what he was hoping to do in his famous Raid on Harper's Ferry in 1859 was to create a slave uprising by having uh, violence and murder Mm -hmm. spread through the South. It backfired. Um, He and 21 men uh, entered Harper's Ferry looking for guns. There was a federal arsenal there. Uh, They killed a free black man who was the station uh, master at the local railroad station. Uh, The local blacks did not rise up as they had hoped through this act of terrorism to, to support them and start a slave rebellion in the South. Instead, they were surrounded in the armory by the local white citizens, uh, most of them were killed. Brown himself was captured. It failed, as an act of terrorism.
0: Right. Following um, the Civil War during the Reconstruction era, you another quote from your book. Your your quotes are so good. I just like to read them. Is the simple racial prejudice does not fully explain lynching. Uh, what, what, what did
1: explain lynching? Well, it's obviously that doesn't explain lynching because white folks were lynched, especially out, out west. But in addition to uh, racial prejudice, or on top of it, there were economic and social reasons and political. Drive the blacks out of politics, which was done, which was a form of terrorism. That one very successful by white southerners after the Civil War keep them from demanding higher wages. I mean, the usual reason for a lynching in the South during the period of the the heyday of lynching, the 1880s, 1890s, early uh, 1900s, was that somebody was getting uppity. They were asking for uh, more wages, a bigger share of the crop. They were in one way or another uh, challenging the caste Mm -hmm. system. And they were put down uh, for those reasons and kept out of politics, kept out of voting. So, racial prejudice, yes, other reasons, also.
0: It was interesting. You had mentioned that whites were lynched too? Oh, yes. I wasn't aware of that. Uh, oh,
1: all through the Most of the Western uh, lynchings, Western, okay. which were, were among and between uh, white men, who were treated sometimes like blacks. I mean, they would skinned yeah. or their fingers and toes would be sold mm-hmm. off and taken home as souvenirs. Uh, and that was done without racial prejudice.
0: Right. I'm sure that was no comfort to the people being lynched.
1: No, uh, was it?
0: Uh, Roger, before the break, just as we concluded there, we were start, starting to talk about some of the causes of uh, violence and homicide in the western frontier and how it may have differed from the south and the north. Can you uh, talk a little bit about sure. that?
1: One simple thing is that there is uh, very often when a territory is first settled, there is no existing law enforcement. People have to settle their own problems and demographically the population is unusual in a mining town where, for example, where the highest rates of homicide occurred, these people are young, male, single, drunken, and armed. Add those things together and you've got big trouble in terms of the potential for argument, fight, and death.
0: It does explain it. (laughs) Um, Let's uh, move ahead a little in time. Talk about the murder rate in the 1920s compared to the 1930s. Why was it so much greater in the 20s? Well,
1: it's not clear. Uh, how much greater it is! Than, I suspect mm-hmm. it was somewhat greater in the twenties, although we don't re- have really firm FBI figures mm-hmm. until the nineteen thirties. It's clear that hom- the homicide rate was going down during the thirties. It was up in the twenties, of course. Um, the usual uh, answer, and I'll echo it: it's prohibition. There's a lot of argument about about uh, booze, and fights among I mean, Al Capone, four hundred and seventy odd unsolved gangland murders in the city of Chicago alone during the 1920s. And they had tommy guns as in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, any number of good reasons why the homicide rate would rise in the 20s.
0: I, I just thought, you know, not having much knowledge in this area in the 1930s, the Depression era, era when times were bad economically like they were in the 1830s, Danny period, in the 1960s. But, that, but, but for some reason, the, the murder rate went down in that period.
1: Sometimes the murder rate does go down in, in bad times and it goes up in good times. There is no mm-hmm. simple correlation between poverty and homicide. One simple reason, historically, remember, people used to be much poorer than they mm-hmm. are now, living closer to the edge of existence, and they drank more than we do now. Bad times, they have to give up the booze at least some of it. You give up the booze, you have less fights. You have less fights, you have less homicides. It can sometimes be as simple as that. The other issue is what uh, um, sociologists call relative deprivation. Probably in the early 19th century, the poorest part of this country were were the New England Northern states, places like Vermont, very poor. I mean, they got nothing but rocks and ice up there, but they also have extremely low homicide rates. South Central Los Angeles is poor, but not nearly as poor as Vermont. The difference between South Central Los Angeles and 19th century Vermont is that South Central Los Angelinos have the lifestyles of the rich and famous beamed into their living room Mm -hmm. every day in living color, and they know they're not getting that, and they want something like that. They want in on the American dream, and that creates any kind, a number of incentives were illegal activity. I mean, selling drugs, selling liquor, armed robbery, uh, gang fights that that have an enormous impact on the homicide rate.
0: Who was Marvin Wolfgang, and what was his contribution to the study of criminal behavior?
1: Marvin Wolfgang, the late Marvin Wolfgang, was a professor at Penn, uh, the greatest criminologist, I think, uh, American criminologist certainly in the 20th century. And with respect to the study of homicide, he was the first one studying f- the city of Philadelphia, what was happening between 1948 and 1952. Precisely, before we get into the theory that sociologists are eager to, to, to heap on, said, who does what, to whom, when, and how? Let's get all the figures straight. 588 homicides, how do you break them b- down by type? Which ones were solved, race? sex um, of victims and offenders got all the facts straight in ways that the rest of us have been trying to imitate ever since.
0: Very good. Um, You state that the single question asked by historians of criminal violence is how do present murder rates compare with those of the past? Uh, How do these murder rates demonstrate that, as you say, history does not move in a straight line?
1: Well, Nothing moves in a straight line and homicide rates go up and down like everything else. They've been going down, as I suggested, since 1993. Um, What makes that question hard to answer is that beginning in the 1930s, we began to get from the FBI national statistics on homicide. Before the 1930s, we don't have good national statistics on homicide. We have to study this city, that territory, this jail, whatever which makes these comparisons very difficult. So that back in the 1930s, everything is a guess. I can give you as, as good a guess as anybody, which would be that probably our highest homicide rates ever in history were in the 1830s, 40s and 50s, for reasons we discussed earlier, right? But then in the late 19th century, as young men got absorbed into the new urban industrial economy, as they found other outlets for their energies, they, they played ball, they boxed formally. After a while they began to put on gloves mm-hmm. even when they boxed. Ways of dealing with and absorbing uh, aggression. The homicide rates went down, probably bottomed out in the early 20th century, rose up as we mentioned earlier mm-hmm. in the 1920s. 1930s, 40s, 50s, they went down. Up in the 60s, reaching a peak of about 10 homicides per 100,000 residents of the United States in 1973 zigged and zagged until they reached about the same level 20 years later in 1993 Mm -hmm. and have now dropped down to about six uh, homicides per 100,000 residents uh, as of now.
0: Thank you for that summary. It's uh, fascinating and enlightening about the homicide rate. Uh, Towards the end of your book, you have another quote. You state that the American gun culture is a better explana- explanation for homicide than poverty is. Can you talk about that a little?
1: Sure. Uh, in general, um, we tend to associate uh, homicide with poverty. That is, poor yeah. young men are more likely to, to, to murder than rich ones, although John DuPont's lawyers <laughs> might have something to say about that. Right. Um, and we're the richest nation in the world. You know, why do we have such high homicide rates? Well, they're lower than Colombia or the Philippines, but we have the highest among the advanced industrial nations. This is very largely because we are the only one of the advanced industrial nations which allows citizens routinely to carry guns. And a man in a bar or in a traffic accident with a gun in his pocket that nobody can see is a kind of booby trap. I mean, he can explode and when touched, and you didn't even know that until you touched him. And that contributes very heavily to the disparity between our homicide rates and those of the other advanced nations, which hover around one to two per 100,000 annually. But even if we subtracted all of our gun killings and left those of say, Britain or Germany, Italy, France, Japan in, we would still have homicide rates two or three times that of these other nations simply because it's so deeply embedded in our history. The violent solution to problems. We tend to honor it. We tend to think, we tend to like tough guys in a way that um, is different from those of any other highly civilized nation in the world.
0: Well, Roger, thank you so much for joining us today. Your book, which will be in a library, Murder in America, a History is fascinating. It's a, it's a wonderful uh, window, as you will, on our entire history from the beginning of uh, America right up to the present. So thank you again for joining us on Book Chat.
1: Okay, thank you. Glad to be here.
0: I'm Carl Hallecker, and we'll see you again on Book Chat. <laughs>